Hello and welcome to yet another thrilling episode of the Climate Voices podcast, your conduit to the change makers shaping our present and future. I'm your host, Omesa Mokaya. This podcast is a unique platform where we aim to break silos and bridge the communication gap that exists between policymakers, scientists, researchers, climate activists, and community practitioners from around the globe to engage in conversation. And as I always say, on this platform, we are addressing the climate crisis one conversation at a time. Today, I'm indeed privileged to host someone I consider a trailblazer in the realm of energy justice and advocacy, who has been a beacon of change centering climate-impacted communities in the push towards clean energy solutions. Our guest today, Yesenia Rivera, is the Executive Director of Energy Allies, and I must mention that is my current boss. So welcome to the show, Yesenia. Hi, Omesa. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yesenia, I know your journey began with deep roots in community organizing, and you've been working, you know, hands-on alongside communities directly impacted by climate change. But before we dive into the conversation today. Will you briefly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about um, your journey into this space and perhaps what inspired you? Sure. Uh, I've been doing this for about six years, but so just an Rivera, like you mentioned, I'm the executive director of Energy Allies. I was born in New York City, but grew up in Puerto Rico, and that's important because I grew up with a lot of energy uh, burden and energy insecurity. You know, I it was Hurricane Alley, so we saw hurricanes just about every season, lost power multiple times, and most of the time it was weeks at a time. So I know what it's like to live with that energy burden and that energy insecurity since I was a young girl. And and that sort of stayed with me. Uh, but it wasn't until I was a housing counselor during a foreclosure crisis that it really hit me. I was working with clients that were you know, trying to save their homes, trying to get mortgage modifications. But even if I could do that for them, they were still so behind in the utility bills. These people had six, $700 a month in utility bills. And it just seemed unfathomable to me that, you know, you could owe that much in yeah. an electric bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started researching if there were any ways to help, what we could do found, you know, solar, but at that point, especially for the clients that were in foreclosure, it was a little too late for them to to take advantage of the handful of solar programs that they were there. They needed new good credit and to own the home. So that around that same time, DC started a program. It's called the DC Solar for All, where the idea is to help 100,000 low to moderate income families in the district go solar at no cost to them and reduce their bill by 50%. So the organization that I ended up working, so United Neighbors, was one of the first grantees, and they were looking for somebody to take over that program, run it for them, and that's how I ended up working in energy equity and yeah. solar equity at that in trying to help low to moderate income families go solar. Um, and it was a very ambitious program. It was unique in the fact that we wanted these families to own their systems from day one. It's not a lease or a PPA. They actually own their systems because in DC, being a solar homeowner is very profitable. And we wanted 
these families to have that equal share of the profits in, in DC and be able to own their systems and benefit from that. So that's how I started working in solar equity and, and energy equity and energy justice issues, which also happened to be around the time Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. And my parents were still there. And it was it was a hard time. I we were one of the lucky ones. It only took us like two days to get a hold of my parents. I had relatives and friends that we didn't hear back from for months sometimes. So, uh, you know, the power went out and the power was out for months at a time. In some places, the power was out for almost a year. That must have been so devastating, right? It, it definitely was. And it, it, it just cemented that something needs to change. The system is not working. At least it's not working for everybody. And that really just reinforced the fact that I was on the right path. And um, I started to see what can be done for Puerto Rico. What can I do about just expanding access to solar? Because, you know, it was clear that this was a life-saving measure. Solar plus storage wasn't just a luxury it was actually a necessity for a lot of folks you mm -hmm. had over 4,000 people die in Puerto Rico because of the lack of access to water and energy so uh, that really just reinforced my vision that this was something that needed to change and that we needed to create access for under-resourced yeah. families for climate impacted families you have mentioned a few things that maybe we'll just, uh, you know, like to start with the basics. You mentioned energy burden. Perhaps you talk more into uh, what energy burden is and you talked about bills. Uh, you know, it's the aim of every household, you know, to warm themselves during the winter. You know, a time like now it's getting cold and to keep themselves cool in summer and keep the bills as low as possible. But that is not happening, you know, with the current system. As you mentioned, something needs to mm -hmm. change and you found your inspiration, you know, pushing for the change. But we recognize that something is wrong with the current centralized energy systems with limitations. And there's actually a growing consensus that we need to shift away a little more to a decentralized form of energy, which is based more on renewable energy. So can you briefly talk about the energy burden that you mentioned about and what the problem is that you recognize with the current energy system? Sure. So energy burden just means that compared to your overall salary, you're spending way too much in paying your electric bill. And like the average electric bill for most people equals two or three percent of their monthly salary. Uh, an energy burden family faces three, sometimes 10 times that amount. Those you have, for example, Boston, the neighborhoods that we work in in Boston, Dorchester, Roxbury, Mandapan have some of the highest energy burdens in the state. Boston in general, you have a 3% energy burden, which means that about 3% of their monthly income goes towards their electric bill payment. For the families in those three neighborhoods, they're looking at almost 10% energy burden. So it's like three times what yeah. the rest of the state is paying. And when you're living paycheck to paycheck, that difference between 3% of your monthly income and 10% mm -hmm. of your monthly income yeah. is a huge amount. So yeah. it means that you have less money for food. You have less money for savings. A lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck because they they just do not have the space to start saving because they're spending everything on their rent. They're spending it on their utilities because mm -hmm. A, we have an affordable housing problem and B, we have an energy problem. 
the energy is ridiculously expensive in some portions, especially when you're a lower income family. And in terms of what's wrong with the system, I think we've seen it time and time again, whether it is Puerto Rico with the hurricanes, California with the wildfires, Hawaii, the wildfires, we have a centralized grid. So it means everything goes through one point. And yeah. when that one point is stressed, Mm-hmm. The whole system fails. Yeah, you know, and you had you saw it in Puerto Rico with Hurricane Maria. Like the hurricane came down through the south and literally wiped out the central part of the transmission lines and the grid, and it knocked it out because everything was connected, everything was centralized. People were without power for months at a time because it took months to rebuild it. You know, whether if you have a decentralized system where you have microgrids, where you have storage, where things are broken up, it doesn't take months at a time to rebuild the system because you're building it in smaller parts, you're addressing smaller issues. I mean, it's the same in Kenya. You mentioned Puerto Rico and, uh, you know, in Kenya, I think two days ago, we had a national blackout where everyone was in dark for a couple of hours because, as you say, the problem is the centralized grid where just when something happens, just a real trigger happens and, and the whole system collapses, which, you know, justifies the need for this push towards decentralized form of energy system, which we have seen is not happening pretty quick as we might wish for it to happen, bringing an idea that something is hindering that transition. So but what are these kind of, you know, systemic challenges that are making uh, this transition to, you know, decentralized energy so hard to yeah, achieve? I'm glad you asked. Uh, Again, I'll, I'll bring it back to Puerto Rico because we have a very unique opportunity right now. You have an entire grid that needs to be rebuilt that needs to be reinvented. And you have over $11 billion of taxpayer money going into addressing and recovering that grid. And that money is being funneled through the utility company, which is now privatized. It was privatized over the last few years. It is now controlled by uh, Luma, which is the company that is managing the system for the Puerto Rico energy uh, utility. And instead of using that $11 billion to decentralize the grid to focus on clean energy because you have an island that has to import every single ounce of fossil fuel that they use, which mm-hmm. means that you have really expensive utility rates uh, where they're sitting in the middle of the Caribbean surrounded by water, sun, and air, and they could be using that to power their electricity at a mm-hmm. much cheaper rate. Instead of doing that and rebuilding the grid in a way that works for everybody, they're using the $11 million to build the exact same grid that already failed them. So yes, you could put new transmission lines. You can, you can just rebuild exactly what was there, but it's still going to fail in the next hurricane because you still have a centralized system. Instead of just building microgrids, instead of focusing on storage and renewable energy and building a grid that actually works for the people, that is not as expensive as it is right now because you have to import all of that fossil fuel, you have utility company that's just going to do the same old, same old because that works for them, not because it works for the people. Absolutely. So um, talking of rebuilding the grid, 
this centralized uh, grid system that we have at the moment, we can comfortably say that uh, it benefits a few. That's why it's becoming so hard to change that. And in the name of trying to move to a more decentralized uh, energy system, which is anchored on renewable energy sources and give the power back to the hands of the people. Uh, you know, the communities and your work has been basically centered around communities, empowering these climate impacted communities. And when we move to this decentralized centralized forms of energy, it means the communities are going to have a say. So uh, trying to empower the communities to have a say in the policy making processes, uh, we have come up with initiatives such as solar that you've mentioned before, which is uh, something that we can see as for some of the solutions that we are looking at, you know, in terms of just energy transition. And you have talked of community solar you know, something that we have been talking over and over again. So how mm -hmm. is Community Solar stepping in as one of the solutions, which is not just providing the energy in, in terms of decentralization, but also empowering the communities to own it up and to be part of the solutions and to be part of, you know, deciding what energy they consume? So I would say that Community Solar on paper is the most uh democratized form of energy there is. It's about the community deciding where their energy comes from instead of being told this is how you're going to power your home. And the reality is that not everybody can install solar on their own roofs either because the roofs are not in good enough shape uh, to be able to structurally support a, a solar installation or because they don't own their roof. So many families, especially on the lower scale of the income, rent they live in multifamily buildings or they're renting homes. They can't just go ahead and install a solar system if they're renting. It's not their roofs. Yeah. Right. So we need to make sure that if we're transitioning to clean energy, that everyone has access to that, regardless of their home ownership status, regardless of their income status. And that's where community solar comes in, because you do not need to own the building in order to access clean energy. You can create these installations all around town. You can put them in brownfields. You can put them on churches. You can put them on commercial buildings and people can subscribe. It's like a solar farm. It's built elsewhere and you pay, uh, sometimes you pay a subscription, depends on your income. For a lot of low to moderate income families, they don't pay to join these systems, but it'll reduce your bill. Your, your energy is coming from clean energy sources. And when you site these these installations inside the community it can bring jobs it can bring infrastructure investment so not only are you reducing your bill you're also creating wealth inside the community so in short this is addressing the challenges of you no know, equity and ensuring the low-income communities especially those ones in marginalized or in environmental justice mm -hmm. neighborhoods not only have access to energy but also the economic benefits that also come from this transition right correct no it, it really is the most democratic form of energy possible especially the way we worked at energy allies is our focus is on community-led solutions we don't go into a community saying this is how you need to address the challenges but instead we go into the community and we listen we listen to what they see as a problem what they want to see as a solution because every community knows what works for them and what does not work for them and we need to listen to these communities we need to follow their lead if we're going to have a just transition we can't just install solar 
solar for the sake of installing solar because that is not going to help the community. You can install utility scale solar miles and miles away from these communities. It doesn't bring jobs. It doesn't bring an infrastructure investment. It really does nothing for the community. It doesn't even lower their bills. So like we have a very unique opportunity at this moment where we need to make a choice. Are we just going to swap out fossil fuels for renewable energy and keep in place an extractive energy system that is hurting our communities, that is burdening our communities, or we're actually going to take the time to reinvent our energy system and make sure it works for everyone? Absolutely. But, you know, like we've said, the utility companies are the center of uh, the current energy system and making it so hard because they are the ones who are actually benefiting from this. So sometimes it becomes hard with financing because, you know, financing is is very essential in this transition. And it, it really plays a very fundamental role. Energy projects like community solar mm-hmm. and as we seek to achieve a clean energy future uh, in your experience that uh, there are some form of financial mechanisms that are available that communities can tap into so that they can benefit fully from this transition, especially through um, projects like community solar. Yeah, it is still, even though the prices of solar have gone down incredibly, I mean, they have gone down a lot in the last few years. It is still expensive, uh, which is why community solar versus rooftop solar makes a lot more sense for low-income families because rooftop solar means you have to come up with the upfront cost. Uh, and it's a lot, especially when you're living paycheck to paycheck. For example, mm-hmm. in Puerto Rico, the average solar plus storage installation is about $30,000, $40,000, where their average yearly income is $25,000. So you're asking family to put more than their year salary just install solar and storage what they need where community solar there's no upfront cost for the family the uh, projects are built and financed through other means now if you're a community and you're trying to build your own system you still have to find the money to build these systems and one of the things that has changed in the last few years is because of the inflation reduction act now you have all these tax credits and federal incentives that are being pushed out there to help communities reduce those costs and, and be able to really build their own systems and built in these installations. I mean, the IRA alone, not only now like nonprofits and non-taxpaying entities have access for the first time to the tax credit, which is 30% of the project cost, but if they build in certain communities, like the communities that we work with, with the climate impact communities, the Justice 40 communities, they can have an additional 20% tax credit. So that's half of the project cost. They can easily recover in form of a tax credit. So that's 50% of the project that they don't have finance, that they don't have to find a loan for. So it makes it a lot easier for communities themselves to start building these systems. And I did some research for the Department of Energy a few years ago, and that was one of the things that we found, that if we're going to expand community solar access, especially for low to moderate income families, and make sure they have a meaningful offset, then you're going to need not just those federal incentives, you're going to need state and local incentives as well. So, And that's part of what the EPA solar for all and other parts of the law mean, because they're putting money into the state's hand, into the cities, so that they can then issue grants, issue uh, like interest-free loans and stuff like that for these communities to be able to actually finance these projects in a way that still lets them offset their bill in a significant way. The geopolitics of you know the energy transition play a 
fundamental role in this too. I've been following up on the proceedings on the 28th conference of parties happening in Dubai. And what we have seen is some bit of resistance from fossil fuel companies. And, you know, uh, trading critical minerals that are required for the transition is in, in many orders of magnitude smaller than trading fossil fuels. And studies have shown that, you know, around 54% of the energy transition minerals that are required are located in indigenous people's lands, which actually underscores the need for robust and early community engagement. And I know at Energy Allies, the focus has been, you know, working with communities through community advisory boards. And if it's well planned and executed, this presents a really important solution that will enable the people to benefit fully from the transition. So um, are there some other form of engagements that we can be engaging the communities to make sure that even as we transition, the communities are involved along the way and they are part and parcel of the process so that they don't feel you know left out and mm -hmm. being taken advantage of. Yeah, well, we need to start by including communities in whatever process or, or design there is from day one. Can't go into a community with a plan already half-baked and say, oh, we just need you to go along with this because that's just insulting and it really doesn't address their concerns and their needs. Like you said, you know, we're we're going into very sensitive areas to mine these minerals. So we have to be mindful. And I think part of it is we need to redefine our relationship with energy. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we need to do the steps, not just to switch to renewable energy, but we also need to really study how we consume energy. And, you know, are we over consuming, which is probably what is happening uh, sometimes. So, so how can we make sure that our appliances are more energy efficient? How can we make sure that our apartments and our homes are more energy efficient so we ha have less need for energy, which means that even if we do go solar or we go with wind or hydro, we need to build less of it. So we're not putting such a big toll on these sensitive areas, on these indigenous areas, and in really, because we're talking about sometimes very vulnerable populations, and you know we're asking to extract these minerals, which we'll need to build the solar systems to build the panels, but at the same time we also are coming up on systems that have been on for 20, 25 years that are during the end of their life, it's not they're going to stop working at year 20 or 25. It's just they're going to be less efficient. But mm -hmm. all of these systems can be recycled. All of the components of those batteries, of those solar panels, can actually be recycled. And we need to invest a little bit more in that so that, again, we have lesser need to be extracting more and more from the earth and just what we've already used. Yeah, so policy is another aspect that plays a role in this and policy frameworks and systemic barriers playing a significant role in the pursuit of energy equity and just energy transition. And so uh, perhaps I'll ask from your perspective what you see uh, are some of the key policy challenges and legislative actions that we can take to dismantle these uh, systems that have been in place that are making this transition impossible. I think the biggest hurdle is, again, understanding how our energy systems work. Mm -hmm. And it's not a flaw in the system. It's actually by design. It is not designed for folks who easily understand what is happening. Uh, there's a lot of jargon. There's a lot of barriers to access these meetings. For example, a lot of states have either public service or some form of public utility commission that make all the rules and regulations in regards to our utility companies from how much are they 
charging us to what sort of uh, energy forms they're using. Those decisions are all made at the public service, public utility level. Those meetings and those hearings do not happen at a time where it's convenient for most folks to attend or even be a part of. And even if they can't attend, again, the jargon, the technicality, the level of uh, that is needed to be a part of those hearings and be able to provide your opinion, it's very hard for folks to be a part of that, for everyday folks to understand how their energy is, systems are rated, how they're billed, what is included in that bill. And, and I think we need to start with that. We need to educate folks about how our energy system actually works, who mm-hmm. makes the decisions, and how you can be part of that decision-making process. And we need to make it more accessible for everyday folks to be part of these conversations so that when the public service and the public utility commissions are making these decisions about the rates for the next couple of years, that they take into account real people and how those rates affect them every day and how it changes their lives every day. Yeah, so... It's very essential to make sure that everyone is involved in this. Mm-hmm. But um, how do we, again, make sure that this involvement, sometimes, because sometimes it can be tokenistic, you know, just having people show up and, and be part of the process, but they don't actually have the agency. So how do we make sure that the communities actually, from based on your experience working with the communities for some time, how do we make sure that the involvement is not just merely tokenistic, but they actually have the agency to, to impact the real decision that are made in the energy sector. Yeah, it, again, it's it starts with the regulators and who are they representing. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at it half of the time, there's this revolving door between the regulators and the industry. So the regulators are really representing the industry. DC a few years ago actually passed a law that instituted job requirements for the regulators where at least one of the public service commissioners had to have customer experience, customer um, advocacy experience. They had to be consumer. They had to have consumer protection in mind and have experience in consumer protection in order to be one of the commissioners. Another commissioner had to have experience with renewable energy and grid modernization. So when these people are getting together and making these decisions, at least one of them is there with yeah. the best interests of consumers in mind, and we need more of that around the country. We need to make sure that the people that are making these decisions actually have the best interests of the ratepayers in mind. And and that's going to take a lot of political change. One of the main concerns that have been raised in the transition is that we have had millions of people already working in the fossil fuel industry. And as we even push for the you know transition to renewable energy, there are worries and concerns. And you know, in the spirit of talking about social justice and you know, in environmental justice, and uh, looking at people's right to support their livelihoods, there are already millions of people working in fossil fuel industry and who are being worried that if we transition to this, are these people going to lose their jobs? Are they going to lose their livelihoods? Which raises a question, you know, how do we address this and make sure the transition is just all these people who are depending on this for their livelihoods Mm -hmm. are catered for? Yeah, Uh, the reality is we need better transition programs. We need better job training programs. We need to invest in workforce development so that not only 
only the folks that are currently working on fossil fuels can transition into better paying, healthier, green jobs, but also folks that have normally been excluded from these jobs have the job training to be part of this new green energy workforce. And it, it really does come down to workforce development. We do, we need better training programs. We need better uh transition plans. So you said there's a lot of folks that are already making a living in the fossil fuel industry. And even if we were not to transition, because I, I don't see that not happening, I think that the transition is happening. It's a matter of how fast, mm-hmm. not if. if. Um, but the reality is that fossil fuels are finite. They're not a renewable source. We will run out of them sooner or later. So we need to have a plan in place for these folks to transition from these fossil fuel jobs into green energy jobs. Is it is it's the right thing to do. And I think there's a lot of skills that can translate in between both fields, and we need to take advantage of that. And we need to come up with ways that and make sure that the new jobs are paying just as much and have just as much benefits as their old fossil fuel jobs. Otherwise, they're going to keep uh, butting up against this transition. Uh, like I mentioned before, geopolitics also influences how the transition happens. And as we near electioneering period in the U.S., for instance, I've, you know, I've, I've been seeing a lot of Republican debates that have been hosted and everyone keeps saying when they come to office, they're going to, you know, do more fracking and deal with the climate hawks and stuff. So, and and with the ongoing uh, conference of parties where it's becoming even so hard to talk about you know fossil fuel face out so how how does this impact again if we you know move two steps ahead and maybe move five steps back someone comes in and they they're talking about because they are using this actually as a campaign tool you know um so how do you uh, you know global politics for instance play mm-hmm. A hand, you know, um, does it have a hand in how the transition happens, for example, here in the US? Because I know some countries, for example, my country has been like in trying so hard to move away uh, to renewable energy. But again, we have these big countries, the big brother mentality, you know, where they are pushing the small countries into a corner to accept to use uh, fossil fuels, for instance. So how are, you, how are we going to address this, for example, here in the US? given that some political leaders are actually, you know, so so much pushing for the fossil fuels and, and calling the climate change a hoax. You know, it, it's really frustrating because I do remember a time when this was not a political issue. There were a time when both of our major parties actually believe in addressing climate yeah. change. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's really frustrating to see how yeah, it evolved is. into making it a political issue because it's not. It's mm-hmm. like, like I said earlier, access to energy, access to clean water is literally a matter of life or death for a lot of families in this country. And we need to take it as such and we need to address climate change because it's a national security issue. It's a, I mean, we, we're seeing what we're seeing right now is a lot of climate refugees coming yeah. into this country because You know, climate has ravaged their homes where they cannot work, they cannot grow their food. It they have no option. They keep coming here because of things like that. So we really do need to address the root of the problem, which is climate change. And 
look beyond politics and it's going to take uh, listening to the communities that are affected by climate change because you can say it's a hoax all you want that doesn't stop the water levels from rising right. it doesn't stop the shores from eroding you know these things are happening regardless of what politicians may be saying so the reality is we need to address them and people need to put pressure and make sure that their lawmakers and their regulators are addressing the issues that are important to them it, it's all about education it's essential because energy like you mentioned it should be a basic you know fundamental right for anyone exactly. to access it's just just like water <laughs> and i mean there are millions of people close to a billion Uh, I know there are around 2 million people in the US who are locked in energy poverty which is nothing compared to you know the the, the number of people in Africa for instance as a whole of a 650 million people locked in energy poverty who can't you know have basic access to energy you know for lighting for cooling or for cooking mm-hmm. clean energy for cooking um it, it's a really big issue that needs to be you know addressed and it needs to fast like you mentioned it's not a matter of you know if it's a matter of when and how fast exactly. it happens yeah so um i mean we're coming to the end of this it's been an, an amazing conversation and um like i mentioned to you before the podcast has uh, a great audience in over 40 countries yeah, so we have a number of listeners who benefit from this yeah so uh, perhaps a call to action what would you like to say to all these listeners who you know feeling hopeless and uh, you know with, with the pressure from power utilities and people playing politics into what it's not supposed to be so how can communities be involved Uh, to make sure that you know um they have a say in the energy they they consume there's a lot of power in organizing and i know that sometimes it seems impossible that it, it seems far fetched and, and far away I and mean, we're fighting much powerful players but there's a lot of power in coming together as a community and demanding change and making sure that folks are listening and, and that's what we need to do we're not going to address this one person at a time one home at a time we need to address this as a community and we need to use that power that we mm-hmm. have as a community and, and come together and really demand change and make sure that the those that are making the decisions are listening to us and are listening to our demands and our needs and are actually addressing them that's powerful this power in communities and we all need to come together to make sure that whoever makes decisions listens and the decisions that are made in the energy sector actually reflect on what the communities need any last words you want to say to the ah, I, i think that's about it just remember you're not alone in this fight there's a lot of folks and we need to come together thank you so much and uh, it's been amazing having you on the show i hope to do this again sometime in future and thank you messa we're going to miss you here <laughs> yeah absolutely i i'll miss you too so this this has been the climate voices podcast and i was your host omesa mukaya and as i always encourage you to keep listening to keep tuning in and to keep sharing the message as yesenia said this hope uh, let's not give up this is the climate voices podcast